Hey folks, if you've been tuning in over the last couple months, you've heard all about the Game Time app and how it can save you some serious cash on last minute tickets to sports, concerts, and all types of shows. They've got that easy two-tap checkout, the great deals to upcoming games, and really all kinds of things, concerts, shows, whatever you're into. Well now, Game Time is hooking you up for the holidays with a $10 credit. Here's what to do. Download the Game Time app in Google Play or the App Store. Click on the My Tickets section of the app, create an account, then under the Billing section, redeem the code THEATHLETIC, one word, THEATHLETIC, for $10 off your first purchase. That's free money, people. Credit is only available to the first 1,000 people who redeem the code, and it expires at the end of the year, December 31st, 2019, so make moves quick and score last-minute tickets. Weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And based on my Twitter mentions, not a whole lot of you uh, want this podcast to be about the Red Wings. Yeah, it looked like most people would rather just have us talk about breakfast and just leave the wings piece aside. Uh, which, I mean, again, I, I do love breakfast and I'm more than comfortable doing that. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I had a really good bagel sandwich today. I was over at my buddy O'Ryan's house and we had uh, like a like a egg BLT on a bagel, which is it was really good. Um, but I'm guessing we should at least get a little bit of the wings in here, and then we can move on. We can talk. We can talk some uh, some other topics. We can do some Christmassy things, the World Juniors, all that stuff. But uh, I do think you know, coming off a of back to back here, Red Wings lose a pair to the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Arizona Coyotes. Anthony Mantha sustains what I have to assume is a concussion. Uh, not that you really want to speculate, but but I mean, based on the way it looked, um, I have to assume that's that's part of it. Uh, there's a, a little bit to discuss here before we can get into the to the, the miscellaneous. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you were asking for how could this weekend go more poorly, I don't know that you could have done that besides having an Anthony Mantha injury, which, yeah, I mean, again, I kind of agree with you. You hate to speculate, but, you know, it sounds like he is going to be out for at least a little bit here, and, and you have to guess that it's probably a concussion, and then you get – Two beatdowns uh, on the scoreboard. One by Toronto, it's four to one loss, and then Arizona the next night as a five to two loss. And so I don't really know that there was a whole lot encouraging to talk about from these two. I mean, it just was another couple of games in what is becoming a painfully long season. Yeah, it, it really. I think a common theme in both of them is like they're having score late, and maybe the score looks a better, a little bit better in the end than it was, and maybe they come alive even a little bit at the end. But for both of these games, I think it, both of them are pretty much over after two periods. You know, the fascinating thing is the Arizona game in particular, I think Detroit had probably a solid first 10 minutes, uh, and then the game completely got out of hand once once uh, the Keller line started going. And so once Keller scores his first goal, I think Detroit basically collapsed after that point. And, and you know, Arizona gets a second one late in the first period, and then they build on it, and all of a sudden now they're up 4 nothing in the third period. And again, you know, that late goal saves them. The Toronto game, I thought, actually had a little bit of a different narrative. 
Um, I mean, that game starts with a Dylan Larkin breakaway, and he actually gets a handful of, of really good chances throughout that game. I mean, if the Wings are able to convert on that, Athanasiu had a great chance. I mean, Larkin had multiple chances. There were The Wings had their chances in that Toronto game to get on the board early. Um, but again, that game didn't really get away from them until the second period after that weird Hyman goal where uh, basically he, he, you know, he right, crashes right into Calvin Picard and the uh, or Pickard, I should say, and the, the puck goes into the net and right before the, the net uh, comes off the moorings. And so that one counts. And again, you know, as we've seen all season, the wings kind of collapse after that first goal goes in. But just two more games to a bad result. And again, adding six more goals to that whopping goal differential. You know what's interesting? And I, you're right. It was it was only 1-0 after two against Toronto. It just felt impossible that they were going to score a goal. Yeah, I mean, that's how it's felt all season. It's honestly, if Detroit doesn't get one or two in the bag early on, um, if you look back to some of their more recent wins, they were scoring that first goal within five minutes, and I thought that's what kind of sustained them to be able to put together a, a winning effort. But in both of the Toronto and Arizona games, Detroit doesn't get on the board until – you know, after the score's already out of hand and both games are not scoring their first goal until it's already 4 nothing on the scoreboard and you really just have nothing you can do at that point when we're talking about a team here that's just struggling to generate offense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the Manta injury, which occurs at the end of the Toronto game, is only going to make that about 40 times worse because he's so important to their lineup. Not just because he's he's arguably their, been their best player this season, but just because of what it does to take out a first-line forward of the lineup. You saw a glimpse of it with, with the way that the lines were running against Arizona. It's just way harder to field two really threatening lines when he's out of the lineup. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And so when you're walking into that Toronto game and you had potentially, you had, you had Zadina on that top line, you had Mantha also in that top six. I mean, that was the first time you felt really good about Detroit's top six all season. And, and again, that gets spoiled by the Mantha injury just because him being there basically allows the rest of the wingers to fall in line. You now have legitimate scoring threats on three different lines with Athanasiu playing third line minutes getting, you know, the minutes from Zadina on the top line and then having Mantha as well on that second line to get them going. And all of that kind of crumbles. And you saw Detroit really struggle with that in the Arizona game by not being able to really find any line combination that they were willing to stick with. In fact, if you look at all of the minutes at 5-on-5, five five, there was no line combination that played more than five and a half minutes together. And you had 11 different line combinations play at least a minute and a half together. I mean, it was purely just a line blender by the end of it um, as Blash would try to find anything that would work. Yeah, eventually it ends up with a goal, a Zadina goal. I think his line mates, was it a power play? His line mates were like Perlini, Nielsen. Yeah, the power play had just ended. It was five seconds after the power play, and, you know, Arizona goes to clear the puck. I think it hits maybe Perlini's skate or somebody stick in front and just kind of ricochets right in front of the net, and Zadina's able to pick that up and deposit that. So, you know, his line mates at the time I think were just the end of the power play guys who were coming on. Yeah, weird, weird one, and probably one that, uh, it's good for Zadina to get it. I mean, he did make a nice slap shot fake and then slid a five hole. It looked like it was, uh, but you know, hard to say that that was really a, a big turning point either by that. I mean, I think there was 10 minutes left in the game. 
Arizona comes right back down and scores again. So it was, it was an ugly one. I think we should, before we, we get too deep into Arizona though, that the way that things ended in the Toronto game were really notable, uh, both in terms of the Manta injury, what kind of led to it and what came after it. Andreas Athanasiu ends up taking a, a run at Alex Kerfoot. What did you think of the way everything played out at the end of that game? Yeah, this is exactly what you want removed from from hockey. I don't think you want to be seeing plays like this just be allowed and not even come up for discussion. I mean, I think it's very clear that the play made by Muzzin to effectively slew foot Mantha and take him head down into the ice, uh, that's a very dangerous play. That is a play that you do not want in hockey. You know, there's people saying, oh, well, Mantha went in there asking for him. He had him in a headlock. That's fine. That's whatever. You know, that's... That's all stuff you don't necessarily want, but there's no excuse to, to go and slew foot, head slam somebody into the ice. And then same thing for Athanasiu. Just because that game's out of hand and, you know, you've had a teammate injured, there's no reason to go flying, you know, take a, basically a flying knee at somebody. And then when they come after you, basically, he grabbed the guy by the head. I think it was Justin Hole and threw him to the ground. And so both of those plays are plays you don't want in hockey. Those are plays you want the Department of Player Safety looking at. Those are plays you want uh, the Department of Player Safety to make statements about so that you can get those out of the league because all you're basically saying is if you're going to let the players police themselves, you're going to end up with more and more dangerous situations where that's either a lot more fights uh, or you have players trying to basically do a little bit of vigilante justice where they're going after guys on the other team uh, because you're not willing to penalize that or take those guys out of the game. We were texting about this a little bit last night as everything happened and um, you and I differ a little bit and, and I don't know that I'm really real cemented in my feelings about fighting in general or whatever, but I think what, what we're, what we're in, in lockstep on is, you know, no matter what, a fight is initiated. You never have to, to throw someone down to the ice like that on the back of their head. Um, that's, that, I understand there's like a, you know, it was a fight, but it's not an anything goes situation there. And I, I understand, I don't know that Muzzin was, was necessarily trying to make that kind of impact, but I think, uh, a little more precaution certainly was warranted. And same thing on the Athens CU play. I thought he kind of, I didn't, I didn't think it looked very good. Uh, it wasn't a good look on him to go, uh, what looked like it was going to be knee to knee with Kerfoot. And then obviously the hall takedown, not good either. Um, you never have to do that. And what we were texting about is there are other violent sports where this kind of stuff is not as commonplace as it is in hockey. It probably signals that it's not as impossible a thing to eliminate uh, as maybe sometimes it might seem or even sometimes it might get sold as. Yeah, I mean, you've got football, a very physical, violent sport, constant hitting on every single play there are dirty plays that happen, but you don't have this kind of vigilante justice coming behind. And I think part of that is um, a direct trickle-down effect of the Department of Player Safety effectively being unwilling to do the discipline themselves and basically allowing the players to, quote-unquote, police the game as it has always been. Um, you know, on the medical side, in hospitals, and when we talk about ways to prevent medical errors or things like that, one of the things we always talk about is are sentinel events where 
effectively there is an event that's going to prompt a significant change that's going to happen and it's going to happen at some point and once that happens we are all going to make a reaction to it and my fear is that at one point or another you're going to have a fight uh, where a guy gets slammed down to the ice and that guy is going to die on the ice. I don't think that that is overtly far away or far-fetched to believe that we that that won't happen um, given the speed, the physicality, and the force with which these guys play, uh, I uh, do not believe that we are far away from that happening. And, and I think that's something that needs to be addressed proactively to where you are handing out the discipline in those situations and not allowing players to police that. I understand hockey is a physical sport. I understand that fighting has been a big, big part of the game in the past, but that doesn't mean we need to allow it to continue to be a part of the game as you've got players who are bigger, stronger, faster, with you know a, a whole host of different skill sets um, now playing the sport. It's just becoming more and more dangerous, and I just think we're not far away from a Sentinel event here. I found that to be a pretty convincing argument. My the way that I come at it historically is I like the physicality of hockey. I it's one of the things that draws me to the sport, has always drawn me to the sport, has always been a part of the sport. Um and so I think it's a it's a good part of the game that I, I would really like to see stay a part of the game. And where I've always stood on fighting is I find fighting or I have found fighting to be maybe the more um fair way to settle issues that are going to otherwise spiral like as opposed to guys taking cheap shots back and forth at each other through a game to me the fight has always been a a resolution to it and then it's it's done it's handled it's accounted for that argument that you made though i think that was a way that i hadn't quite ever thought about the potential like ramification of it i've always kind of thought you know a guy gets bloodied up he might lose a tooth absolute worst case scenario i was i have always thought he gets a concussion which is often a given on one of those really cheap headhunting shots. I never really thought of it in those terms, which maybe just makes me an idiot, but um, I found it pretty compelling. And that's coming as someone who I like really physical hockey. It's it's one of my favorite brands of hockey. So I don't know. I don't know what that says. Maybe that says I'm not a very sharp person that it never occurred to me before, but I hope that at the minimum, uh, the fact that it, that I'm kind of swayed by that, it hopefully, uh, hopefully led some credence to it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, your your way of thinking isn't wrong. I mean, honestly, one of the first memories that I have of the Red Wings is Fight Night at the Joe. I mean, I have a poster of Darren McCarty beating the crap out of Claude Lemieux. Like, I had that as a kid growing up. That was That was one of the biggest reasons I got into hockey and started watching. But I think as my professional career has kind of shifted into the medical field, and even if you just look at a parallel of boxing, right, that's what we're talking about, effectively, is fighting. You had three professional boxers die in a relatively short span of time, maybe a few months back. All I mean, there's nothing illegal about it. These guys are wearing padded gloves on their hands. Sure, they can probably hit a lot harder, um, and they're taking more punches. But, I mean, you had three guys die in the span of a couple of weeks, and... And I'm just worried that at some point you're going to have one guy connect with the right bare-knuckled punch to the right spot on somebody's head. That person's head's going to crack the back of the ice, and you're going to have a sentinel event happen. Um, I don't know that we're particularly far away from that happening. Uh, and so it's just something where I think you want the Department of Player Safety to take a look at this. And unfortunately, you know, I made a tweet today talking about it. 
I don't know that George Paris is the right guy for this. This is a guy who played an enforcer role in, in hockey. He's a guy who runs Violent Gentleman as his brand, and he sells merchandise that says, make hockey violent again. And so I think what you've ultimately seen to a certain extent is hockey is being left to the players to police them unless it's an egregiously dangerous act. And and as a result, I think you are eventually going to have a sentinel event result from either a fight, a bad hit, a reckless hit, um, something happens that couldn't have been policed out without affecting the overall physicality of the sport. We're not asking to take away hitting. We're not asking to take away, you know, the great open ice hit. I'm a big fan of the Nick Cronwall, you know, hip check that he learned how to do towards the end of his career. That's a, that's a great play. Those are safer. Those are safer plays. Those are not life endangering plays, but I'm, I would like to see those life endangering plays taken out of hockey. Yeah, and two things I think that that are reasonable ways to approach it are, number one, there needs to be somewhat of a shift in the thinking of, like, what is a hit that needs to be answered for? Because a lot of hits stem from guys who were like, hey, you just hit my teammate really hard, including this instance, right? Like, I don't know that that, uh, Muzzin's hit on Madison Bowie was dirty. It didn't look dirty from the angle I saw at the very least. And Mantha goes over to engage. He sticks up for his teammate again. The way I come at it, that's something in general, historically, I've liked. It's like this idea of like, hey, I'm going to stick up for my teammate, right? But in that instance, you're sticking up for him because he got hit within the rules. That's not a situation that needs to result in a fight. So that's one, there kind of needs to be some kind of shift in the players potentially of of what they deem that needs to be kind of uh, quote-unquote answered for. Uh, number two, a shift in the refs of like, you can't let things kind of get to that place. And I know the refs have an impossible job of trying to break up guys who are Anthony Mantha and Jake Muzzin's size uh, in those heat-of-the-moment situations. If they really want to go at each other, it's pretty hard to stop them from doing it. Um, but, man, it seemed like the kind of – not necessarily this one, but but it seems like um, you got to not let guys go at it maybe quite so quite so easily, I guess. I totally agree. And, and the point you make about the players, I think, is really well made. I think a lot of people have been lamenting the fact that you now have players going after one another for relatively clean hits. I mean, a guy makes a hit, it's clean. He got a guy with his head down and wasn't paying attention, makes a solid hip check. You know, that, that that's hockey. That's what you want to see. And, and I guess one thing that I'm going to throw out there as a potential problem is how much of that is the player's acting on their own volition and how much of that is coaching staff's expectations of you need, you know, Hey, if you're going to make the roster as a younger guy or as a skilled player, you need to be a guy who's going to go out there and defend your teammates, protect your teammates. I mean, it's hard to speculate, you know, not being in the locker rooms with these guys and not hearing what's said on the bench. But, you know, you do wonder to a certain extent if that mentality is driven from the top down and not necessarily, entirely player driven so i think it's a problem across all levels you're talking about on the ice with the way the players are responding the coaching staffs you know potentially enabling or or encouraging that type of action you're talking about the refs who need to find a way to get a better handle on it and call the game tighter if you need to i mean realistically over the last few years we've been you know towards an all-time low in penalties um, relative to when we came back from the first lockout in 0405, and there was a ton of penalties called at that point in time, which was similar to what was called during the 80s and 90s, and now we're just drifting towards fewer and fewer uh, penalties called during the game. And then lastly, when you do get these really egregious situations, you need the Department of Player Safety to step in and be that 
you know, be the bad guy, be the one who's going to lay down the law and say that, hey, you know what, that kind of play, we don't want that in hockey. You're going to sit for a handful of games. And I think Brendan Shanahan did a really great job of this when he stepped into that role when the department was created back in 2011. I think Stefan Kital uh, also did a decent job, but I think we've kind of lost the direction a little bit with George Paris. And so I think there's room for improvement at all levels right now. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think that the, um, I don't know. It, it's a layered issue. I, I think that the way players come up is, is a big part of this too. Like, I don't think it's just, it, when you come up, there's sort of an expectation of like, of what, what you're going to do, how you're going to play. The thing you don't want to be called is you don't want to be soft or whatever. And how much of this mentality comes from, you know, guys when they're trying out for junior teams or whatever, and they get told, Hey, you got to be willing to, to do this and that, to mix it up. And, and how long does that stay with you? So it, like you're saying, it, it, this stuff runs really deep. It's not like you could change a rule and change the game in, in overnight. Like it's, a lot of it has to come very consciously and at, at many levels. And I think that can make it seem like an insurmountable problem that, the best way to tackle is kind of these tweaks around the edges. Um, you know, I'm not saying that this Mantha situation is even necessarily the most egregious thing of the season or anything like that. I just, but I, you know, you watch a play like that and you watch a, what looked like a, a pretty hard hit to the back of the head. Um, it's scary. Have you ever had a concussion? Yeah, I mean, I've actually had one, honestly, on a similar play playing yeah. roller hockey, uh, where my feet got taken out of me by a stick. It was actually more of an accidental play. It wasn't, uh, you know, a guy tripped me actually from behind, and I and I actually flipped backwards and landed on the back of my head. I've actually had two concussions, and it's just it's a miserable experience. Yeah, I, I same same deal. I've had one where I fell on the back of my head too, and they're not they're not fun, and you know. I don't know. You, you see the effects that guys deal with for years to come. I think it's worth every conceivable effort to to take concussions, to, to neutralize them to whatever degree possible, right? I don't think Jake Muzzin, like, went into that altercation saying, I want to concuss Anthony Mantha. Do I think that there are ways that he could have maybe been a little more cautious so as not to do it? Yeah, and I don't blame him for that, but I think there are things that – uh, same, same exact thing for Andreas Athanasiu on, on Justin Hall, right? Like, I think that these are just things that, um, much like players have had to learn to avoid hitting on, like, hitting the head directly in game, maybe it's just a little rewiring that happens to make sure that whatever you're doing in these, it sounds absurd, like, you're, you're trying to punch a guy in the face, like, how are you gonna avoid his head or whatever, but like, in these fights that you're not gonna give that kind of impact to the head. Yeah, I mean, and that's where I think at all levels there needs to be an emphasis made on actually protecting players, preventing concussions, promoting this brain safety. And I don't know that even though the NHL talks about that being a priority, I think their actions clearly speak that it is not a major priority for them uh, relative to when Shanahan was in that role when he first came out. I mean, he was so he had a New York Times article written about him saying Brendan Shanahan is making hockey a safer place. He had the Shanna bands. Like he he did a much better job of trying to police certain things and I think that's where the NHL needs to step in and make this a, a bigger emphasis so that across the board um, we can work on preventing these types of head injuries. Yeah, I think that's well said. All right, we'll get back to the hockey now, but I felt like that was something we needed to talk about, um, especially 
as it as it looks like you know Anthony Mantha had to miss this one. We'll see how much longer he has to miss, but obviously um, that's huge news for the Red Wings, and I think it has kind of bigger picture implications for the sport. Is there anything that stood out to you in the Arizona game uh, as particularly good or particularly bad? Uh, particularly good is hard to come up with really anything. I think the guy that you can talk about now is as Mantha continues to miss time and Larkin's kind of struggled to find his game. You know, it's really important to talk about how good Tyler Bertuzzi's been. He's kind of flying under the radar, but, you know, he scored the lone goal for the Wings against the Leafs. I think he's got goals in three consecutive games. He's the Wings point leader. He's their goal leader. I mean, he's, this is kind of out of left field. I think if you had asked anybody who's going to lead the Wings in points, Bertuzzi probably at best would have been no better than your fourth answer behind Larkin, Mantha, and Athanasiu. Uh, and so I think that's been a real bright spot for the Wings in a season that's been very, very dark and gray. But obviously, if we have to talk about the way that game went as a whole, I think there's two big things that stood out to me. One was this was Jimmy Howard's first game back from injury at the NHL level. Uh, you know, I think there were some things that looked good from him, that stretch uh, glove save he made late in the third period. I thought that was phenomenal movement. It showed you that he trusted that groin, that he was able to push across, make that lateral movement. So it at least shows you some signs that he's healthy. But man, oh man, I mean, there's at least two goals there that you want you want him to, to make those saves. I think it's the second Keller shot where Keller takes that wrist shot from maybe 45 feet out. It's unscreened. Uh, you know, Jimmy Howard's got to make that save. And then the third goal, obviously, just misplaying the puck off of that Soderbergh poke check and the puck ends up in the back of your net. I mean, you and I have talked about this at length. When you look at the wings and the chances that they allow, you know, relative to the rest of the teams in the league, they're not allowing this disproportionately high quality of chance against such that they're basically hanging their goalies out to dry. I think the biggest story right now is the Wings are just not getting goaltending from anywhere. And so you lose Jonathan Bernier in that first period against the Leafs game. You don't know, at least at this time, Max, unless you have more information, we don't know how long Bernier may be out with that. And so now you're trotting out Jimmy Howard, who's given up five or more goals four times this year. That's actually more times than he's given up less than three goals uh, in a game. And so now you're trotting him out along with Calvin Pickard, who's Again, not basically proving that he's not an NHL goalie at this point in time. And so you can't, it's going to be hard for the Wings to do it, um, you know, really to stay competitive in these games unless Jimmy Howard can find something uh, to get himself going again. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I, I agree with you completely. I didn't think the second or third goals were the kind of goals that uh, you want to see an NHL goalie let up. Now, Jimmy Howard's first game back, I get that. Um, but I also don't think that it's the first time it's happened this season. And uh, that's a red flag. Now, as you're saying, though, I, I think the Rebels gave up like 45 shots tonight. Like right. you're not, you can't pin it on the goalie when you're giving up that kind of uh, volume. And so I think they're, you know, I, it's hard to find. I, I like your Bertuzzi point because he continues to do it. And, and and honestly, I'm really impressed at his finishing ability. I Maybe I should have known this coming in. I didn't know that he could finish like this. I kind of thought he looked at his shooting percentage last year. It was double what it had been the season before at like 16%. I was like, all right, well, that'll regress a little bit. No, he's actually raised it, in fact. Like, it's it's really impressive from Tyler Bertuzzi. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that I think if you look all the way back to the beginning of his NHL career, there was no one that really believed in him. Like, a, you know, I've said this on the podcast before, and the stories were out there. The Wings took him in the second round. The NHL Central Scouting Service did not have him ranked. 
Like, he was not ranked to go in the first seven rounds, and the Wings took him in the second round, and that was a huge red flag at the time. They are going, oh, they're only taking him because he's Todd Bertuzzi's nephew and this and that. And now you look at this guy coming to the NHL, and he had 40-plus points last year. He's leading the team in scoring this year. He's likely on pace for, you know, 60, 70 points this year. Uh, and he's doing it while having good on ice impacts, and he's doing it without really larking driving his point totals. Like this is this guy's leading your team in goals right now, and I think no one would have expected that at the beginning of the season. So, you know, he's been a real bright spot. He's a restricted free agent this upcoming year. He's he's in line for a big payday. I mean, I think a lot of people, myself included, had significant doubts about his ability. I think, hell, if you go back and Google search, you could probably find an article that I wrote three years ago saying, I don't know that he has a future in the NHL. And now you're looking at a guy who's a top-line winger who's going to score 60 or 70 points. So this this guy's really doing everything he can uh, to keep the wings moving in the right direction. Yeah, I think early in the season we talked about you know, the interesting nature of his contract and how, you know, how can you say that he's not been just like the beneficiary of playing with Don Larkin? Well, he's outscoring Don Larkin by a not insignificant margin at this point. Yeah, I mean, the two have been playing together for the most part, but if you're looking at and trying to pin down who's actually driving those plays, it's probably Bertuzzi driving those scoring plays. I mean, he just seems to be in the right place at the right time. You look at his goal against Toronto, you look at his goal against Arizona, that puck just all of a sudden squirts out of the middle, and bang, he puts it right in the net. Uh, so he he knows where to be on the ice. He's not the beneficiary, at least this season, of just playing simply playing with Larkin and Mantha. He's doing a lot of it on his own, and, and he's keeping the wings, or he's trying to keep the wings at least semi-close in the games that he can. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think back to, you know, I would come home from college in like 20, what was it, the 2015 playoffs that the Griffins were in? And I just vaguely remember Bertuzzi like producing a lot in, in the playoffs. I think he was close to a point per game. And I think he was close to a point per game like every single playoffs of his Griffins career. Like every, every time I would come home from college. Oh, there's Bertuzzi again, you know, point per game in, in the playoffs. And it would, it would be like, okay, was he going to do it at the NHL level? And, uh, you know, no one really knew. And, and now you just think not only is he going to, is he going to be able to produce at the NHL level? He's not even that far off that kind of production at the NHL level. He's at 30 points in 38 games. Yeah. I mean, he's, like I said, he's, he's in line for a big payday. He's right now given Mantha's missed games. I mean, my team MVP. And I think coming into the season, I would, he would have probably been fourth on my list for potential team MVP, potentially even fifth uh, behind Philip Ronick. And so this is just a, a huge season for him. I think it's a really encouraging sign because what you're looking for from these guys right now in the midst of this awful, awful season is who's going to declare themselves to be a core part of this team. And I think right now Tyler Bertuzzi is making a compelling case to be paid like a core member of this franchise. So give him the Dylan Larkin contract. Give him an Anthony Mantha contract. This is a guy who is cementing his status as a core piece moving forward. Yep. Yep. I think it's a good point. Other than that, though, not a whole lot that went right. I mean, Zadina scores his third goal. It was a goal of his stick on it, but it was a nice move by him nonetheless. Uh, but man, just one of the, one of the more hammer home nights of how rough this season is going to be. I was, I was trying to figure out earlier. What was that? What was the point total of that Avs team a few years ago? That was like really terrible. Forty-eight. So they got to forty-eight. Do you see the Red Wings getting to forty-eight point? Like it sounds crazy considering at the start of the year. I think I picked them to get to like seventy-four or something. Like 
I yeah. don't know that I can confidently say they're going to get to 48. Yeah, I mean, most people had them, you know, around 77, 78, 79. I think Dom was probably the lowest on them, and he had them around 73 points. So, you know, we're still talking about 25 points clear of what, you know, Colorado did in that infa- infamous season where they only picked up 48 points in 82 games. I mean, right now the Wings have 21 points through 38 games, and so that's putting them on pace for 45 points, which is going to be the lowest mark of any team in a really, really long time. I just don't see it happening. If Mantha's out for a long period of time, if Bernier's out, he's been the Wings' best goalie. If he's out for a period of time, if Jimmy Howard can't find his game, if Dylan Larkin doesn't get back on track scoring, I mean, there's just so many things you need for this team to to get going right uh, that I just don't know that they're going to do it. I mean, I was looking this up the the other day. The Wings right now are sitting at nine wins through 38 games and that's not far off of when the uh 85 86 team really the worst team in wings franchise history they got to 10 wins at about the 45th game if i'm remembering correctly and that i'm not even sure if the wings are going to get there uh, just given their propensity to go on these long losing streaks so it has just been really really ugly is that who people call the Dead Wings? Yeah, the Dead Wings is kind of that mid-80s stretch when they, they landed Steve Eisenman and it took him about, you know, eight or nine years. But 85-86 was really peak, peak Dead Wings. Okay. I've always, like, that's something I, I see in my mentions a lot and I can't really ever tell. Is it like, is it an era? Is it a season? But if it, it, it makes sense that it's an era. Yeah, it's, a, it's probably most of the 80s slash late 70s you could toss in there because 80-81 was also a pretty bad year for them. So, you know, but 85-86 was the height of badness for that Dead Wings era. Who did they get out of that draft? They actually didn't get anybody useful out of that draft. Eiserman was a couple drafts prior to that. So th- I think that was actually his third season in the league, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, you know, the Wings didn't get a ton of help, um, you know, out of the 80s. I think it really took all the way until the 1990 draft, uh, or I should say 1989 draft, before the Wings yes. finally turned it around where they picked up, you know, Lindstrom and Fedorov uh, and a couple of Konstantinov. You had such a... Such a good draft that year. That was when they really were able to kick it into high gear and, and get out of it. But, I mean, man, oh, man, the 80s were were a rough time. That year, actually, 86 draft, they took Joe Murphy, who was a decent NHL player. Uh, he ended up scoring almost 250 goals, 500-some points in the NHL. But uh, not a whole lot of that for the Wings. In fact, the 86 draft wasn't really that great at the top. I don't know that there's a single guy... Uh, up there, maybe Vincent Danfus would have been the best player in the top 10 taken. So, uh, a rough draft overall. Yeah, Danfus yes. and Brian Leach were actually the two guys who were the top 10 in that draft. Well, Leach is something. Yeah, uh, yeah Brian Leach. I studied the 89 draft decently close. I did a story on it last year and, uh, man, what a different world that was when you could just, you just know about this, this guy and you're like, ah, well, we'll get him in the third round. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Where you're just like, I mean, that draft was crazy because if, if we're getting really into the, the nuance of that draft. They were going to take Burray. They were going to take Pablo Burray, right? Yeah. So, and Vancouver's gets him because on a technicality, someone tells the Wings that they're not allowed to draft him, so they don't draft him, but then Vancouver just does it and then proves that they can do it. And all of a sudden, Burray's over there. But you almost had, uh, you almost had Lindstrom, Fedorov, and Burray and Konstantinov out of a single draft, which would have just been absolutely nuts. 
And they were going to do it anyway, too, by the way, on Bure. If I remember right from my reporting, they were going, they were told no. I think it was the fourth round. Yeah, they and they were going like, to go the next They were next told this round. will be ruled ineligible. Exactly. They were going to be like, well, it's worth the risk in the fifth. And I think Vancouver did it like three picks in front of them. Yeah, they just just barely missed on having Red Wing Pavel Bure. Would have been the greatest draft of all time by an additional mile. Yes, if that were the case. exactly. Uh, if <laughs> this is a little bit of a, of a harsh pivot, but if there is going to be a, a saving grace out of this season, uh, one of the re- one of them will be the fact that the Red Wings have a ton to watch at this year's World Juniors, which will start. Right after Christmas on the twenty sixth, uh, I think I think it's worth doing a little bit of a of a primer for our listeners here on what to expect out of that tournament, laying out you know what's what the situations are for the various prospects and also some of the draft eligibles who they might be able to uh, get an early peek at. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to watch coming up. So yes, you are free from Red Wings hockey for the next six days. Uh, but you have World Juniors Hockey to watch, and that starts on the 26th. It'll run through January 5th, so you want to make sure you tune in for that. Uh, so for those who are not familiar, this is basically the collection of the best U-20 players um, in in the world. And so you've got two groups. Each has five teams. So Group A is going to be Kazakhstan, Switzerland, Sweden, Slovakia, Finland. Finland's your defending champions from last year. And then Group B is kind of a death group, if you will. It's going to be the U.S., Canada, Russia, Germany, and the Czech Republic. And so you're going to have a couple of powers who are going to have to go through this relegation round. Um, and so for those of you that are in the United States, uh, most of the games should be broadcast on NHL Network. Uh, the tournament's taking place in the Czech Republic this year, which is six hours ahead. So just keep that in mind with your viewing times. Uh, those of you in Canada, the game should be on TSN. So... There will definitely be ways to watch. Um, and as far as Wings-specific content, uh, you're going to have a handful of players that are already within the system to watch. And so on Team Sweden, uh, the probably the highlight of the non-North American players to watch is going to be Jonathan Berggren, who was the Wings' second-round pick in 2018. He's a great uh, left winger who's had a strong start to his season in the SHL. So that's the Sweden uh, top league over there. Um, he's a excellent, excellent winger, and I think he's the next guy you're going to see come over and make a real impact and potentially be a top six winger for the for the Red Wings. Uh, so expect him to do really big things. He'll feature prominently on Team Sweden, and then also on Sweden is uh, goaltender Jesper Eliasson, who's the Wings' third round pick in 2018. He's a bigger goalie. He's a six foot three, 210 pound goalie who's uh, been playing in the kind of the second-tier Swedish league, which is Allsvenskan, on loan. And he's had a pretty decent season thus far. I'm not certain that he's going to start. So even though he's the oldest goaltender on Team Sweden, uh, Tampa's 2019 third-round prospect, Hugo Onlefelt, uh, has actually jumped all the way up to the top Swedish league this year in, uh, in the SHL, and he's had an excellent season thus far. So... I'd be surprised if Eliasson gets all the starts, but he should at least get in a game or two, so so keep him on the lookout. Uh, obviously, Team Germany is going to have more insider for the wings. He's just been uh, dynamite uh, in Grand Rapids. I expect him to captain Team Germany, even though I don't know that that's officially been announced. And, and Germany's got a lot to play for. So this uh, last year they were in the relegation round. They fought, they won that. 
um, in the D1A tournament. So now they're back uh, into the main draw, and they're going to have to beat one of the U.S., Russia, Canada, or the Czech Republic to avoid relegation. Um, so I expect that team to be playing all out. And then last but not least, in um, Team Canada, you've got Joe Valeno, who, even though he struggled a bit in Grand Rapids, he's going to feature prominently on Team Canada. He's good. He's already slated to play on the top line with Alexi Lafreniere on his wing, who's projected to be the first overall pick. Uh, so he's going to be a, a big, big piece of that team. He was actually on Canada's team last year that lost in the quarterfinals, and so I think Canada's looking for a little bit of redemption. Um, and also on that team was Jared McIsaac, and he'll be back on that team. And so he should feature prominently on the top pairing uh, with playing with Ty Smith, who was the Devils' first-round pick in 2018. So those two guys, I think, are going to play big, big roles on, on Team Canada. So a couple of Wings prospects to watch for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in, in prime roles too, I mean, you should see, like you said, Valeno on that top line. And I think that'll be interesting considering the fact that last year he had, uh, more of a, a, I think he was a winger and I think he was kind of in more of a penalty kill kind of checking role. Uh, I think he put up two points in five games in that tournament and it'll be interesting to see how much more he's able to do, especially with kind of what he's learned out of the pro game coming into this one. Jared McIsaac, I think, you know, the, the big thing to watch is how does he look out of that shoulder surgery in this offseason? Is he, he's known for playing a physical game. Is he right back into it or, or what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, McIsaac is really a wild card for the Red Wings, I think, because when, when you're talking about the Wings and a lot of the moves they've made thus far, part of the emphasis for the organization appears to be clearing up that defensive logjam. I think that's why they were comfortable, you know, moving away Billy Sarriarvi. That's why they've been comfortable in terms of getting, a, you know, moving away Oliver Kasky. I think what you're trying to see is you're getting an assessment of that logjam, but McIsaac's a guy who truly, uh, if everything falls into place, has that top pairing potential along with more at Cider. Uh, so he's definitely a guy I want to watch, see how he recovers from the shoulder surgery, see how he looks moving the puck, see how he looks, because he should be a dominating force for Team Canada now as a 19-year-old on that roster. So he's a guy that you really want to watch and hone in on. So this maybe is spoiling a little bit of an article that I'll have coming out soon, but I've kind of picked a few games that I think are the are the must-watch games for Red Wings fans um, in the tournament. Do you want to uh, guess them or, or give yours, and, and I'll, we'll see how we line up? So, I mean, I think for Red Wings fans, any game that features Team Canada is going to be much must-watch hockey because the Wings are going to have a top-four pick this year. They're going to finish with worst overall, which means they can't pick any lower than fourth. And so in addition to Valeno and McIsaac, you're going to be watching guys like Alexi Lafreniere and Quinton Byfield who are projected to be first and second uh, overall in this year's draft. I mean, Lafreniere... Uh, has been talked about for years. He's been argued to be the best prospect that's come along since uh, McDavid and really the best prospect out of the QMJHL in quite a while. Um, he's one of a handful of guys to have gotten exceptional status, which means you're allowed to actually play in the Canadian Hockey League as a 15-year-old. Uh, the only other guy who's done it in the QMJHL is actually Joe Valeno. So I'd imagine Canada versus Sweden is probably a big game to watch, although you won't necessarily uh, get that one in the group play. So are you talking about just group stage play, Max? Yeah, group stage play, five must-watch games. Okay, so five must-watch must games. You're going to have Sweden-Finland. Correct. You're going to have uh, Germany-Canada. Correct. You're going to have probably Canada-USA just for funsies. 
Correct. I'd imagine Canada, Russia to see Askarov. Correct. Okay, and then uh, let's see here. Probably just Germany, Russia then, I guess, to get another one for Sider, right? Germany, Czech, because I figure Czech Czech is the team that they maybe can can show a little more against. Although I'd hear the argument for Germany, Russia similarly. But I think Germany and Czech, number one, that's probably playing for a spot in the quarterfinals. And number two, it's the team that Germany maybe could could do the most against. I think that if if you're looking for a game where Sider's going to show off some offense, maybe get a goal, uh, I think that's the one that's most likely to happen. Yeah, I completely agree there. And the Czech Czech are a proud team. They're a team that's never been relegated. And so and the host nation. And they're the host nation. And so that is a team that's going to be motivated to play, but they appear to be the most vulnerable ones uh, for Team Germany to be able to knock out. So, yeah, I completely agree with those five as must-watch games because there's a lot of top 2020 prospects in a lot of those games to watch. Yeah, the Sweden one, too. I think Sweden-Finland. You're watching for Berggren. Um, Eliasson may not get the start in that game, but you're watching for Berggren, and then you're also watching for Holtz and potentially Raymond. Um, you know, Finland's the defending champ, so even if they're not quite as good this year, that's a big rivalry. That's when you're going to see these guys maybe tested as much as they're going to be tested in the uh, preliminary stages. Uh, so I think that's I think that's the one to watch there. And like you said, basically anything with Canada could count. But I wanted to, to do the ones where it's you know Canada U.S. You can watch uh, the, the Red Wings top prospects against guys like Trevor Zegers, Cole Caulfield, Alec Regula, who was on the first power play when I was out at that camp uh, earlier this week. Uh, and then you can watch him against Moritz Seider, uh, maybe maybe Moritz Seider and Joe Valeno uh, go into a corner. You can see what happens there. You be all holding your breath. Yeah, I know, right? You're going to be making sure that nobody delivers that hit. You're going to want both of those guys pulling up there. <laughs> I don't think they will, though. I don't think they will because, they, you know, they're wearing different uniforms. And Sider's a big body. Valeno's a big body. He's a shifty forward. You're not going to see those guys hold up against one another. I think it'll be a really fun tournament. I think it comes at a really important time for this fan base, too, man. Like, based on some of the the, the responses I got when I asked people wanted us to talk about tonight, um, I think this fan base needs a little bit of anything that's not just the the Groundhog Day that's been this season. Yeah, and so a couple of other names to really pay attention to. So we talked about Alexi Lafreniere with Canada. A couple other guys that are likely top three round players um, that I'll point out for you. is also on Team Canada. Uh, Quentin Byfield is likely to be second overall. He's had an excellent season in the OHL. In fact, he's got the seventh highest points per game by a draft-eligible player of the last 20 years in the OHL. And so when you start rattling off the list of names, you get really impressed. Uh, the, the highest in the last 20 years is McDavid at uh, 2.55. And then after that, it's Patrick Kane. Then you have actually another top 10 eligible player this year. Marco Rossi is coming in at 2.33. He's not playing in this tournament because he's Austrian and actually did, chose not to play in the D1A on the advice of uh, some of the people advising him. But then after Marco Rossi, you've got Sam Gagne, Jason Spezza, Mitch Marner, and then Quinton Byfield slots right behind them. And then after Byfield is Dylan Strome, Matthew Kachuk, Taylor Hall, and John Tavares. So that's kind of the company that Byfield is keeping right now. He's doing that as a six foot four, two hundred and twenty pound center, exactly the kind of guy Wings fans are, are drooling and hoping to be able to add. Um, and then beyond him, Jamie Drysdale is projected to be the top defenseman in the draft. He's playing at a point per game pace in the OHL. Uh, Dawson Mercer, interestingly, also managed to sneak onto Canada. 
as a uh, kind of center winger. He's a all-situations type guy. He'll likely go later in the first round. Um, so he's got to watch if he's slipping. Uh, Sweden, Max, as you mentioned, you've got Alexander Holtz and Lucas Raymond. Both guys are projected to be top 10 picks. Raymond, in fact, uh, by McKean's uh, hockey rankings, is still actually ahead of Byfield on their list, although they haven't updated their list in, in a couple of months. So uh, he's a big winger to watch, great scoring winger. His numbers look a little down in the Swedish Hockey League just because he's not getting much more than 10 or 11 minutes a night right now. A little bit of a similar situation to what Sider had last year where he was you know, getting six, eight minutes sometimes in a game. But in the in the minutes he's showing, he's looking really, really good. Um over in Finland, you have Anton Lindell, who I still haven't seen officially cleared. He's still on Finland's roster. He was supposed to be out for six weeks as of November 23rd, and so right now we're only at four weeks. But he's another projected top 10, top 15 pick. He was on Finland's gold medal team last year. He's, again, another big center winger guy. Um, the the real guy I want to keep my eye on is in Russia, is, is their goaltender Yaroslav Askarov. So double under Asia for the tournament. Exactly, exactly. And so he's he's a goalie where like last year you were talking about Spencer Knight being one of the best goaltending prospects ever. Askarov is kind of in a tier above based on what people have been talking about him. So he's actually made his way all the way up into the KHL this year, which is the top Russian hockey league and arguably the second best hockey league in the world next to the NHL. Um and he's looking really really good. Because uh, to put it in perspective, only seven draft eligible goalies have ever even played a game in the KHL, and there's only one with more than nine games played, and uh, that was Danila Alistratov several, several years ago. Um, and then in Russia's second tier league, which is the VHL, uh, Askarov's had an excellent season. He's got a 922 save percentage in 16 games. Uh, playing for St. Petersburg, and so he's he looks like the real deal. I'm still terrified of taking a goaltender so early in the first round, but he's a guy you definitely want to watch. Um, and those are probably the big guys I'd pay attention to. Otherwise, outside of them, you know, the Czech Republic's got a couple of great wingers and Pitlick and Mysik. Mysik likely to go in the uh, first round. Pitlick maybe second, third round. Germany is going to be outside of Cider, another fun one for Wings fans to watch because Tim Stutzel is likely to be a top five, top ten pick. He's having just a phenomenal year um, in the German in the top league in Germany, which is the DEL. He's actually averaging just under a point per game. No draft eligible player from the DEL has ever averaged more than 0.72 points per game, and Stutzel right now sitting at 0.92, just kind of blowing it out of the water. Uh, so he's looking really, really solid. But beyond him, you have Lucas Reichel, who is Robert Reichel's uh, kid. Reichel's likely going to be a second-round uh, pick, maybe late first. He's having a really good season, uh, similar to Marcel Gotch, who's the guy who had .72 points per game. Reichel's right there with 15 points in 24 games in the DEL. He's a solid winger. He's doing pretty well from a shooting perspective. And then J.J. Paterka is the other winger on Germany, who's also, again, at, at nine points in 25 games played, second, third-round pick, another good scoring winger. So there's a handful of guys to pay attention to, even outside of the wings prospects. So this is definitely where you want to hone in uh, for the next 10 days. All right, some quick hitters for you on those guys as, as it pertains to the Red Wings. Jamie Drysdale, uh, your thoughts on kind of him as a prospect? You talked about kind of where he, you know, he could sit among the 
uh, draft eligible defenseman. He's a right shot. Should that matter for a team like the Red? Let's say the Red Wings pick fourth or fifth, and they're looking at a guy, Drysdale's there. Their two best defensemen in the system right now are Moritz Sider and Philip Ronick, who are right shot D. Should that influence their 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 approach with potentially whether to draft or not draft Jamie Drysdale? I don't personally believe so because I think positional drafting often ends up biting you uh, as opposed to drafting the best player available, the player who you perceive to be the best regardless of position. Uh, and that's because with how much the draft you know, how much goes into player development. Sometimes guys just don't work out, even though you're incredibly confident on them. And so drafting players into specific positions of need when they're likely not coming up for anywhere from two to five years, I think ends up hamstringing your scouting overall and hamstringing your prospect development. And you end up with situations where you're very dry in a particular aspect of your uh, prospect pool as opposed to just drafting the best players available and hoping that they develop into exactly what they're supposed to be. Drysdale, if you're trying to compare back across drafts, I don't know that he's substantially better than Bowen Byram last year. I'd probably put him a notch above Bowen Byram in terms of being the best um, defenseman available. But if you go back to drafts, the draft that has, you know, has Quinn Hughes, has... Uh, Noah Dobson, as Evan Bouchard, has all of those guys in that draft. I think he's a notch behind the top four guys from that draft. Uh, so I don't know that I would want to jump on Drysdale at four or five. I think he's likely better suited a little bit further down, maybe in this eight, nine range, which again, you don't expect the wings to be drafting there unless they either go on a real heater of a run or they get another first round pick. So I'd probably stay away from Drysdale solely on the basis that you know, I don't think drafting for position is the right thing to do for a team like Detroit. Okay, Quentin Byfield, a couple of, of maybe fringe uh, components to, to whether or not you draft him. Obviously, the production speaks for itself. How does it factor in the fact that, number one, he's one of the youngest players in this class, and on the flip side, he's one of the biggest and most physically mature players in this class? How should that affect how we perceive his stats? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So one of the interesting things about guys who are really big and are really developed uh, in the junior leagues is those guys often, because they have that size and skill set, you have a legitimate concern, and this has been demonstrated in a couple of small studies, that the reason these guys' scoring numbers are so good is because they're so much more physically mature than the other guys are playing against. And as a result, as they progress up through the leagues and they're now going against guys who are not as you know, who are not that far behind them or even the same size or even bigger, they actually struggle to translate their game to a certain extent just because sometimes they develop the bad habits of, hey, I'm six foot four, 215 pounds, and I'm going against Jamie Drysdale in the OHL who's 5'11", 165 pounds as a defenseman. There are things that I can do with the puck and against a guy like Drysdale that I may not be able to do when I'm in the NHL and I'm going against six foot four, two hundred and ten pound Moritz Sider. Uh, it's a little bit different, and so you do wonder a certain extent if if the reason his production is so high is because of his size. Um, I can't obviously say that having not watched a ton of game film on him, but it's a legitimate thing that's been shown uh, to happen to a certain extent. But all that being said. You know, Byfield at six foot four, two hundred fourteen pounds, being one of the youngest players in the draft, he's only a couple weeks away from being in the twenty twenty one draft. I think that's all really, really impressive, and he's a guy that you should take 
a long look at number one if you're the Wings. Yeah, I I think that's a really good way to put it. The last guy is Tim Stutzel. Is there any chance you think that he plays center at the at, as he moves upward, or is he a, a true winger? And should that matter at all? I know you just talked about kind of drafting for position, but I think when you look at the way that the Red Wings' wings are set up for years to come, it, it, would that deter you at all, or would that give you pause as to how high you want to draft uh, a, a winger who's not Alexi Lafreniere? Yeah, you know, it's an excellent question. I mean, Stutzel... Uh, is playing more and more center. Uh, so I think that's certainly something he can develop into. I think with Mannheim, he's played a little bit of center, a little bit of the wing. I think you may see him center, uh, one of the line, the top line in Germany, um, with potentially Reichel and Paterka as his wings. Uh, I don't think that would be out of the question, although one of Reichel or Paterka would likely be playing on their off wing if that were to happen. So, It'll be interesting to see how they're deployed, but I, I would imagine that that's what Germany is going to do if that's going to give them a legitimate top line to go against them. So I don't think it's out of the question that Stutzel becomes a center or could play his way into a center. I, I would imagine that the conversation about whether or not to draft a winger, that like also applies for guys like Raymond and Holtz. But at that point, you figure, is, is there really a better player available than those guys? And if there's no one close... You might just have to do it. Yeah, and, and that's what it is. I think right now, if you're talking about centers at the top of the draft, uh, obviously Byfield is, is the guy you want, and Stutzel can play a little bit of center, but Holt and Raymond have been primarily wingers. Lafreniere is obviously a winger. Anton Lundell has played primarily winger. Uh, you know, so there's not been a ton of other guys, unless you're talking about Marco Rossi, who's a little bit of a smaller center. Uh, at six foot, or sorry, at, uh, at five foot nine, and so he's a little bit on the smaller side relative to Byfield. But again, the scoring production you can't really argue with it, given that the only guy really uh, ahead of him is McDavid and Patrick Kane. So he's another guy you could consider. But I think it, once you get past Lafreniere and Byfield, you're now taking the best player available. I do wonder about Rossi's skating. Not that it's necessarily like bad or anything, but it's not quite as. Uh, flashy as you might want for someone who's who's that small. Yeah, I mean, the size piece is always going to factor in. I think that's why a lot of people still have him projected going anywhere from 8 to, to 14 in the mock drafts, despite the fact that we are talking about a guy with the third highest scoring output in the OHL, uh, you know, in the last 20 years. Again, McDavid and Patrick Kane are the only guys ahead of him right now. And so, uh, you would obviously want to see him have a little bit more flash and flair to his game. He is playing on a little bit of a better team than Byfield is right now in the OHL, but his skills are undeniable, and I think someone's going to get a real gem in the in the latter part of that, uh, the top 10 to even the early teens. Would not be the first time someone psyched himself out of a really good player uh, just trying to take advantage of uh, or, or trying to – trying to overthink it on, on the size. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see a number of guys every year drop simply because they are 5'9", five 5'10", five uh, when really these are guys who should be going you know, anywhere from 5 to 8 spots higher. Yeah, Rossi's another one too, birthday-wise, where he could like very easily have been in last year's class. But all, all the ways that you can talk yourself in and out of guys all day long, and even last year his production was pretty crazy in the OHL. So. Yeah, he's a legit player. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I, I I probably dragged that out a little bit long, but I'm I'm curious about some of these guys too, especially as as you go into a tournament where you're going to be able to see a lot of them. But uh, we can shift into the listener questions now. I'll stop uh, 
dragging you through the prospect ringer. <laughs> let's do it. All right. Uh, let's see. We'll start on a light note from Arjun. Any interesting recipes you want to share? Uh, recipes. I mean, this could really run the gamut. So this morning, uh, so we did our secret Santa with my family. So we had, you know, 26, 27 people over here. And so I had made a couple of different banana breads. So one was a banana apricot bread and then another was a banana chocolate chip bread. Uh, and then we did a cinnamon streusel coffee cake, which was pretty darn good. I'd say that's, that's definitely, if you're looking for that perfect coffee cake that's not too sweet that actually pairs well with coffee, that is it, although I will advise that is diabetes in a pan. It is literally loaded with cinnamon sugar, but it is totally worth it. Um, and then what was the other thing that we made? Oh, we also made some uh, herb and chive and cheddar cream cheese biscuits. We just had all the different things going this morning. So I think most of the recipes that I make come from King Arthur uh, and their baking website because I think they give you a lot of the precision that I at least I look for when I'm baking with the weights of everything in grams and they often give you these picture by picture blogs so you can make sure everything's looking correct so i would definitely toot their recipes for those three items yeah my girlfriend allison's a big uh, she's a bon appetit stand i think that's like a new york times uh product or whatever yeah. but we always make recipes off of there there's a, a a pot roast called the mississippi pot roast that has like pepperoncinis in it and it's unreal good it's one of the best things i've ever had in my life there's also a it's like a steak salad that has like kind of corn in it which is phenomenal and tomatoes that we make sometimes that's that's awesome um, i'm trying to think of what else she makes these like incredible like chicken katsu sandwiches that are oh, that sound just good. unreal um yeah so those would be the ones that i would if, if you want them hit me up I'll, I'll find a way to get it to you uh okay next one Matthew Bailey, this will be a, a one that I think a lot of people will be interested in. Should the Red Wings pursue Leas Anderson, and what would it cost from a Detroit perspective to acquire him? Leas Anderson is an interesting case because I think, honestly, the last time I saw him play really good hockey was the World Juniors maybe two years ago. Um, he's a guy that's just really struggled to find any sort of consistency in the NHL, he's not been able to play consistently well at the AHL level. Uh, you know, I think he's a guy certainly worth taking a flyer on, but I think he's a, he's basically Jesse Pugliarvi in the making to a certain extent where uh, I think a lot of his development has maybe not been ideal in terms of getting certain opportunities Um the Rangers have kind of had a little bit of a struggle in getting their prospects into advantageous situations for years. They're playing, you know, Buchnevich on the fourth line and then sending him down to the AHL, bringing him back up, kind of these disadvantageous situations. And I think a little bit of that's been going on with Leah Sanderson and even Capocacco this year as well. Um, so I think it's worth a flyer if you can get him for, you know, a, a third round pick. Uh, or maybe even something slightly more. If you want to also send a contract that way, you can maybe throw in a second-tier prospect uh, the Rangers' way. But I don't know that I would spend more than that chasing him just because if you brought him to Detroit, what would you offer him role-wise, development-wise, that he wasn't currently in in New York? And I don't know that you can offer him the ability to step right into a top-nine role 
in Detroit, I think you're going to end up putting him down in Grand Rapids to a certain extent. And I, I don't know that that's going to necessarily allow him to pan out any differently than he is right now. Some would say there's a third-line center job that would be reasonable. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly available. Um, and again, we would see what Blasher would do uh, in that respect. And certainly he would be a nice compliment to Athanasiu on the third line. Uh, I do wonder, though, contract-wise, who else would need to be moving out? Because at, at this point, um, you're probably going to need to move an, an NHL-level deal or at least find a way to waive somebody, uh, unless you're talking about returning Philip Zadina back to Grand Rapids, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense at this point. It's actually kind of funny. One of the few positives of the whole Eric Comrie thing with the Red Wings is that they did manage to move a contract off of their ledger because they traded a contract for contract to get Comrie. And then when Comrie got claimed off waivers, uh, they're down now to, I think, like 47 contracts. But I, I'm in agreement with you. I don't think the Anderson deal makes a whole lot of sense right now because I think that it's it's too early. I think this is still in the area where uh, you're going to have to give something real up for him. In the mold of the Fabry deal, all those kind of things that they've been able to do so far. You've been able to pay a pretty reasonable price for all of those guys, whether they've worked out or not, mostly because it was a little past the point where teams were were really banking on them. I think that the Leah Anderson thing is still fresh enough that you're not going to be able to get them uh, as cheap as you would want. And, and I just, for that reason, think when a guy hasn't worked out with a team and yet they want a premium asset or, or not even necessarily premium, but a high level asset in return. Um, I'm leery of that because I'm not, I'm not real sure that they'd work out any different for me, you know? Yeah, exactly. Now, if you want to talk about a Leah Anderson deal in the context of a Alexander Georgiev deal, Rangers goaltender right now, a package that I can get behind. Uh, I think Leah Anderson though, is the centerpiece of a deal likely would result in you overpaying for a player that I'm not sure you could fundamentally alter his development, at least this season, um, on a different path. But I would certainly explore, uh, as you got towards the off season, uh, what it would look like. Because again, from the Rangers standpoint, even though there's been a request for a trade, I don't know that there's a true urgency to move him from the Rangers standpoint. Uh, so that's going to keep his price on the higher side. That'll lead us right into the next question, which is from Steven, who says, what should you, what should the revenues do about the goaltender situation trade? Sorokin? Georgiev? Someone else? Yeah, I mean, if I'm looking at goalies right now, I think Georgiev is a guy who makes a natural, makes natural sense. I mean, the Rangers obviously have Henrik Lundqvist, and they're, by, no matter what anybody says, they're not going to move Henrik Lundqvist, uh, they're going to let him finish out uh, his career in the Rangers organization. And so when you look at the Rangers, they've got, you know, Alexander Georgiev, who's playing right now. He's a 23-year-old goaltender for them. And he's basically been splitting starts with Lundqvist. And he's been really, really good. Like one of the top five goalies in the league good in his 16 starts. And so you're asking yourself, well, then why are the Rangers wanting to move him? Well, coming up behind him, the Rangers also have arguably the best goaltending prospect in the world uh, in Igor Shesterskin. And so therefore, at some point, something's got to give here. And there's a, there is an impetus to maybe move uh, Georgiev, giving, you know, one, you've got Lundqvist in place, and two, you know, you've got Shesterskin coming up, and he is legitimately going to be the next big thing for the Rangers. And so... You know, Georgiev makes sense. He's a restricted free agent at the end of the year. Uh, he's the kind of guy where if you're, you're looking at a price, you are probably going to p- 
uh, have to pay a pretty penny for him. You are talking about potentially an Athanasiu for Georgiev type swap. That's kind of the the price that you're going to command there. But I think he's certainly a guy to to look at and consider making that deal, um, uh, given that the Rangers are going to have to move him with Shesterskin also being 23 and needing to uh, get into the league relatively soon. I think Sorokin's also an excellent option, but barring one of those two guys being had on a reasonable deal, I would prefer that the Wings wait till free agency and actually bridge uh, with getting a guy like Thomas Grice or getting a guy, uh, you know, potentially another one of the free agents out there who could bridge for one to two years. Yeah, yeah, and I think the in the, the fine folks at Hockey Reference inform me that it may be pronounced Georgiev, which is an interesting uh, twist on this whole thing that I didn't realize. It's good to know. Um, so Georgiev, um, you do wonder, like flashing back, the, the Rangers have already traded a really high level goalie to Arizona a couple of years ago, young goalie when when they had Lundqvist and were going to be able to really uh, find enough time for him in, in Antti Ranta. That was, I believe, a pretty pricey deal. I think Arizona had to give up a top 10 pick uh, in that deal. Derek Stepan, of course, also involved, which is a mitigating factor. Do you think the price would be that high? I mean, what, what, is it like Athanasiu and a second get it done? Like what, what does it take there? Yeah, I mean, I think legitimately you're, you're talking about maybe Athanasiu and a third or Athanasiu and a, and another prospect going back the other way. I think Ronta was a little bit different in that he had, uh, more of a track you record. Know, right. He had more of an NHL track record and was a little bit older, a little bit more established. He kind of, you know, he was 28 at the time that he was dealt. He had played four NHL seasons. We are talking about Georgiev's, you know, first real NHL year, and he's 23. So there is certainly more of an unknown, and potentially that could get spun into the, the price being a little bit lower. Um, you know, but I would expect uh, that that the Wings would be able to get away with maybe Athanasiu in a third or Athanasiu in, in a lower-tier prospect. I think that deal overall was Derek Stepan and Antti Ranta, and they actually got back you know Tony D'Angelo, who's arguably their best defenseman or one of their best defensemen, and the number 7 pick in the 2017 draft. So that was quite a steep price that the, the Rangers were able to command for that, uh, for Ranta and Stepan. Yeah, absolutely. In, in a weird way, I, I think that Georgiev's youth, even though it does come with a little less track record, it might also be a selling point for them of like, this guy is only going to be 24 when you get him. He could be your starter for 10 years. Um, but obviously you can't always back that up if you have less than a full season of, uh, of total games. Also a note on Anthony D'Angelo. Wow, I didn't realize how good of a season he was having. He's got 24 points in 34 games. Yeah, I mean, he's right. You know, you would think that Jacob Truba is, or Brady Shea or, you know, one of those guys. But really, I mean, D'Angelo and Adam Fox have been the two best defensemen for the Rangers this year. I think they've had monster years. So that deal from the Rangers' perspective, if you fast forward a couple of years, looks like an absolute steal getting Tony D'Angelo in that 2017 uh, seventh overall pick. D'Angelo, of course, uh, Steve Weiserman draft pick back to, back to Tampa Bay. Yeah, he's a heck of a player. And so, you know, the Rangers got a real deal there. I think you'd have to hope that uh, uh, they're able to not uh, come away with such a win. And funnily enough, that 2017 7th round, or 7th overall pick, it was Leah Anderson. So, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's all coming full circle here. 
That's what we call putting the bow on it. All right, we're going to do one more question before we let everybody go. Uh, this one is a good one from Brendan Robert, and I don't know that we're going to be able to answer it in a satisfying manner, but we'll take a stab. What offseason moves would the Red Wings need to make to make you think the offseason was a success? This is such a tough one because, you know, we're not even halfway through the season at this point in time, and so getting in a We don't know season, who the free agents are going to be. Right. And... We don't know who the free agents are going to be. We don't even know who on the active roster is still going to be a part of the active roster, but... I will do my best to take a stab at this. So moves that have to be made. I think if you can get Anthony Mantha at a cap hit under six and a half million for more than five, for five or more years, I think that's an absolute win. I think if you can get Tyler Bertuzzi at a cap hit of under five and a half million for five or more years, I think that's a big win. I think if you can get an asset for Andreas Athanasiu, whether that is Georgiev or you know, something else, whether that's another first-round pick, another top-tier uh, asset in some respect, I think that's another big-time move. I think the next thing would not really be a move, but lack of a move, and that's bring nobody back from the Red Wings free agent defenseman. I think that's a huge piece there in clearing up the logjam is let Biego walk, let Daly walk, let Mike Green be done, and don't... Uh, tender a qualifying offer to Madison Bowie. That's going to free up four spots for you. That's going to let you get um, a couple guys up. I think you're going to have to figure out what to do with the goaltending position, whether that is getting Georgiev with Athanasiu, whether that's going out and signing Thomas Grice uh, for a couple years, whether that's going out and getting Cam Talbot for a couple of years. I think you need another stopgap in there to get you at least two more years before you're, you can make a real decision on Philip Larson or somebody else. I think the smarter move would be to get Georgiev just because I'm not overtly confident in what Larson's going to be. I'm not confident in what Petruzzelli is going to be. And I don't think the right move is spending your fourth overall pick on Yaroslav Askarov as good of a goaltending prospect as he may be, just given how much unknown there is about projecting goaltenders. I've talked about this on other episodes where there's a lot of guys who have come out and have been the next big thing. Hey, even Jonathan Bernier was a next big thing as a goaltending prospect, and he hasn't necessarily panned out at that elite level um, in the NHL that you would have wanted. There's, you know, all sorts of guys. In Florida, it made sense to take Spencer Knight in the first round last year because they had a second first round pick to be able to do that. Detroit, as of now, doesn't have that. I don't know that that makes a ton of sense. And so with that top four pick, you want to make sure you're landing a game-changing player. And so for me, that's either, you know, Alexi Lafreniere, that's Quentin Byfield, that's Tim Stutzel, or that's Lucas Raymond. And those are one of the four guys that I want to land. And you do all of that, and you allow the roster to continue to turn over, and you keep injecting new talent, I think you're going to have a successful year. But the most important thing the Wings can do is get good contracts for Mantha and Bertuzzi, get something for Andreas Athanasiu, and have a really strong draft. Yep, I think those are all really well said. You didn't account for the fact, though, so we're going to have to deduct points for the fact that the Red Wings, by rule, are getting Jake Muzzin this offseason. <laughs> well, does does are they going to get Jake Muzzin because Mantha technically lost that fight? Or how does that work? Does he have to actually win the fight? I don't know. I think it's just as soon as mantha fights someone now did he drop the gloves i don't is there a threshold at which like it, there wasn't a fighting penalty issued was there or does it have it to be a fight where mantha breaks his hand i don't know 
we're the universe need, hasn't really ruled on this. Yeah, we're gonna need a we're gonna need future clarification on this. It's funny though because I actually think a short term deal on Jake Muzzin wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. I, I think that uh, I agree they do, they should not bring any of their expiring contracts back on defense. However, that only that does leave a spot uh, in the lineup, a glaring spot. You figure that they're going to have Philip Hronick, Danny DeKaiser. Patrick Nemeth, Dennis Chalowski, and I, I think Moritz Sider in that lineup next year. But that leaves a glaring hole. I think Alex Biega maybe can be on the roster. I don't know that he's the guy that you go into the season planning on him in the starting lineup. Um, I have argued in the past for a, a Tory Krug move. Prashant has been pretty convincing, I have to admit, uh, that maybe that there, there could be some downside to that too. I'm still on the fence about whether I think that that would be um, the right call or not, but if they don't do it, then I think they do need to go out and think about maybe a Trevor Van Riemsdyk or just someone on a two or three year deal to help give buy you a little bit more time, get someone steady back there, so not you're so that you're not breaking in half of your blue line. Um, I mean, you actually already will be any more than half your blue line um, as guys who have you know less than 150 career games played. That seems like playing with fire a little bit. So I think you do need to go out and bring somebody in, but but I, I'm beginning to be convinced that maybe the high dollar deal, uh, they're just not close enough to to justify that while I, I maybe before thought that they might have been. Uh, Eric Gustafson, another guy that I think if you can get him at the right number, could be interesting. I think they really lack a power play quarterback, so that's something that, that I would be um, I'd probably be saying it should be something they should look to address in one form or the other. I think if you can rig the draft lottery, that's the other way to really have a success. <laughs> you gotta get into that top two, I think. And then um, I don't I don't know what the answer is necessarily at center for next year. If you get Byfield, that's probably the answer. But um, you're you're looking at a situation where you got Phil Blah. He can he can man the job at second line center another year um, just to to be in that spot. But at some point, you got to find a way to to maybe give a little bit of a boost up there. I don't think that Joe Valeno or Michael Rasmussen can be that next year necessarily. Yeah, I think Rasmussen as of now would be my more likely projection if if the yep. wings were going to elevate one of their guys into the three C role, but you know beyond that, I think they're going to have. Oh, to I think one of those guys has to be in the three C next year. Yeah, right? but just, I'm, I'm talking like even the second line. Yeah, and I think you're going to have to rely on Valtteri Filippo to hold down that second yeah. line again because that is a huge hole in the wings roster right now. And again, you know, unless you're landing Byfield or Rossi, and even Rossi's no guarantee to translate immediately to the NHL uh, next season. I think you're you're really looking at. Uh, a tough spot and you know maybe it's Stutzel if you're able to land him but I think the Wings are more likely to get one you know if it's not Byfield or Lafreniere I think their draft pick is more likely to go the route of the AHL as opposed to the NHL in that first season um, Rossi, Byfield and Lafreniere interesting, interestingly would need to either be CHL or NHL based on uh, you know their their situations coming out of the Canadian Hockey League yeah, very interesting. All right, well, plenty to pay attention to, and obviously we'll get a clearer picture on especially that off-season stuff. The closer things get, we appreciate you guys listening, though. I know it's been a a tough first 38 games, and we somehow managed to do a normal than longer episode <laughs> this weekend, even without a whole lot to talk about. But I think we did, for the most part, fulfill our pledge to not spend too much time talking about the Red Wings. Yeah, I think we actually spent more time talking about not the Red Wings, so I think we honored your request. All right, you're welcome. Uh, we will reward you 
Well, I guess we won't with another episode midweek this week because it'll be the holiday. But we'll reward you with a, a really good episode at the start of next week. So check back with us next Monday. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you then.